If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How you doing there? It is time for the podcast. I was just singing there, John. Do you know, I was going to tell you, we did the podcast last week in Argentina. Yeah. But you know, there's loads of talk about the Oscars in Ireland because of the, the Banshees of Inishira, yeah, right? which yeah. I haven't seen yet, but I will yeah. go and see it's it. Brilliant. Right? It's brilliant, okay. brilliant. But one of the other... I just don't like you no one more. Of, <laughs> Actually, you and I fell out with each other. I just don't like you no more, man. <laughs> and I was like, why did you like me? You always liked me. I threw my fingers at you. <laughs> but another movie that I saw was Argentina 1985. Is this extraordinary movie about the trial of the military junta who killed and disappeared people in Argentina. Right. Was this, a, sorry, a doco or a drama? So it's a movie. It's a movie. It's, right, the best, right. and it's, it's, it's Oscar nominated for the best foreign movie. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. And it is brilliant. It is about the lawyer, the prosecutor, who against all the odds took on the case against the junta in the very first democratic government in Argentina in okay. the 80s. Yeah. Under a guy called Alfonsín, who was the president, Right. And just how they dismantled the case of the junta and the way in which, you know, you forget that tens of thousands of Argentinians were disappeared, i.e. were killed and never found again. Yeah. These are the people who threw people out of helicopters. And, you know, there's a very interesting thing about Johan Cruyff not the playing in the 19... So Johan Cruyff was the best footballer in the world. Yeah, yeah, right? I remember him. Even I remember him. You're right, okay. He didn't play in the 1978 World Cup. Right. Didn't Why? Play because he was against what was happening in Argentina and he didn't turn up. He, so the best player in the world didn't turn up the World Cup. Now, there's lots of various theories as why he didn't. But I think the overwhelming one is that if you read the history of Argentina, there was an interrogation center beside two of the main stadiums in Buenos Aires. And apparently, allegedly, they used to torture the kids because they were only 16, 17, 18. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. During the games. What? So they wouldn't hear them. Really? Yeah, no, it's extraordinary. So 
well worth a watch. Okay. Jeez, I, I, do you know what? I, I actually remember that being glued to the telly and watching football and kind of really enjoying yes. the World Cup. Yeah. And it's and horrifying it seems, to think that yeah, that was going on that's at exactly the same time. What was going on. That's exactly what was going on. That you had a military coup in 1975 in yeah. Argentina, a trumped up charges that there was a civil war when there wasn't. There was a fear of Marxism coming from the Che Guevara thing, all, all that sort of yeah. idea. The CIA, of course, were involved. Always, as always, always involved. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately, what came out of it was an extraordinary, savage, brutal, and incredibly cowardly repression of young teenagers who they accused of being communists and Marxists. Yeah. Anyway, enough of this. We're going to talk about some economics. The biggest question in economics is, what is economic growth? Where does it come from? Why are some countries successful? Why are not? And the man who's going to answer this is a guy called Tyler Cowen, one of the greats of economics. If you're interested in economics, there's a wonderful blog that Tyler writes, an extraordinary output mm. every week, extraordinary in range all over the place, right? But tying it all back to economics it's called the Marginal Revolution. It's Tyler's blog, absolutely outstanding. He's on the line. He's in Washington. Let's go and talk to Tyler Cowen about the big questions. Let's go to Washington. Tyler, how are you? Great to see you. I am fine. Thank you, David. Now, Tyler, I'm going to go straight to it. Economic growth, the elixir of economics in a way. I want to ask you, why is it important and where does it come from? Overall, human lives on average are much better in wealthier societies it's not just that people have more money in their pocket, but the wealthier societies are more likely to be free, more likely to be democratic, more likely to protect women's rights. You have a greater ability to choose your occupation. All kinds of freedoms and pleasures and ways of fulfilling your life and, and becoming who it is you want to be, uh, you have better opportunities in the wealthier society. Your children get better health care. Uh, you can travel abroad more, whatever it is you might want. Uh, if you look at where the world's poorer people want to go when they have the choice, typically they wish to migrate to wealthier societies. And so let's just look at it. So because economists sometimes, I think, betray sometimes our own limitations about economic growth because we look at it as a number, as GDP or something. But what you've always done is you've got into the into the much more general things that basically the relationship between freedom, democracy, and capitalism, the relationship between diversity and innovation and economic growth. Let's explore all those issues. You know, take a society like Western Europe or North America. How has it evolved that these societies are richer? The wealth of a society, putting aside a small number of oil-rich principalities, but it comes from having good incentives, incentives to produce wealth, having relatively secure property rights, some notion of a rule of law, having a system of government where you can kick out the worst performers, however imperfect your democracy might be. If it can get rid of your worst leaders, it's actually pretty good. And then just incentives for wealth accumulation and innovation. Innovation is a wellspring of progress. We have new ideas, new goods and services come along all the time. Those raise our standard of living. Uh, they also enable us to fund government programs we want. Wealthier societies have more resources to draw upon for their governmental budgets. 
So if you think of basic liberties, democracy, capitalism, they're all influencing each other back and forth. It's a chicken and the egg problem. But there's a way you, you get them together with a fairly high level of social trust that just makes for very good lives for individual human beings. And explain to me this this role, this kind of this is very elusive idea of innovation, because as you and I know, it's thrown around a lot. It sounds great. You see it in marketing brochures, etc. What exactly is it? And I, I mean, is it this Schumpterian idea of this constant evolution? Or, or, or what is what is it? You know, when you try to explain to your students innovation, what do you say? Well, there's really many types of innovation. Sometimes it comes suddenly. Sometimes it's small, gradual improvements that you don't necessarily notice. So when I was younger and drove a car, I got flat tires fairly often without doing anything wrong. Tires just weren't that good. There was never a big newspaper story, you know, about safer tires coming. But these days I've driven for many years. I drive more. In fact, uh, I don't get a flat tire at all. It just doesn't happen. Tires are better. So that is slower and gradual, but it makes my life safer and I don't have to worry about changing the tire out in the cold. And uh, sometimes something comes suddenly. So we have chat GPT now, right? Where you can ask it questions, including about economics. It's imperfect, but it can give you these amazing answers. And we use it to teach ourselves things. Innovations can come from big firms, from small firms. But I think the common element is that at some level, you have an entrepreneur who sees how the future could be different from the present that we're all used to. If you look at economic history, Tyler, it's fair to say that, you know, economic growth is a very new thing for humans. It's a really new thing. I mean, it's, you know, you, you have these, all these various graphs, I think it's called a hockey stick chart, shows you sort of income for humans for you know, 100,000 years. And then everything's kind of moving, mooching along, mooching along, nothing's really happening. And then suddenly around, you know, 1750, 1790, 1800, things start to take off. Economic growth becomes a thing. And this notion of economic growth percolating down into what became a middle class and then what became class structure. And then why was that? That's a big and very difficult question. <laughs> if you're asking why did the Industrial Revolution happen when it did, I can give you my opinion, but I would stress that specialists in this area still are debating the question. But I think with, you know, England and, you know, Great Britain, you have this fairly protected political unit. It is an island. It has a strong navy. It has a lot of coal. It has a broadly Christian philosophy of individualism. It has a reasonable degree of rule of law, at least for whites, not in the empire, but... yeah. And, I'm, I'm, uh, sure, I'm sure, I'm sure the Cowan, I'm sure the Cowans living in Ireland didn't think that about a hundred years ago. Well, they left, right? So <laughs> yeah, exactly. they went somewhere else where they could think it again. And my, you know, my country has done pretty well also. And then on top of that, uh, you just have this spirit of invention take off in both Scotland and England, often Northern England. It was the tinkerers, not always the elites or the nobles. And they just kept on doing things. And there was a cumulative self-reinforcement to this process. And at first, you have rates of growth. Maybe they're only 1% a year, we, we might think. That's not really that great. But it, it never stopped, is the difference. And earlier in human history, like the Romans, the Greeks, they had done better than their predecessors. But at some point, it stopped and reversed and went backwards. The unique thing about Great Britain 
is that it really didn't stop. And and not only did it not stop, but it percolated out into other countries, France and Germany, and of course, and of course, then the most resplendent example is the United States of this. Correct. This so let's get into the you know into the the psyche of the United States, right? So we've all, most Irish people listening to this have relations in the states. We've worked in the states. I've been a dishwasher in the states. I've done it all, right? So legally, illegally, all that carried on when we were kids, right? But in terms of the American willingness, maybe not ability, but willingness to to try, to strive. Where does this come from? Well, America, as we all know, is a nation built out of people who left the places where they were. So I think that's selected for people who are more adventurous, more risk-taking, in some ways less respectful of authority, less tied to their parents. Uh, and then you mix them all together. So you get some big social problems from that. I think that is clear. But you also get a lot of innovation and creativity. And just America being a large company, country, we have the you know, biggest single market that there is. And great trade ties. And the English language, of course, is more or less the global language. So we're just uniquely well positioned to innovate. And for a long time, we have not had serious threats to our national security. I think that's a big help. We have a democracy, a functioning constitution. And again, all this might be imperfect, uh, but it's better than some of the alternatives out there in places like Russia and China. And it's interesting, you also have this great advantage of two massive pieces of water between you and the rest yes. of the world. I mean, it really helps. It really helps. The, the Atlantic and the Pacific are not inconsequential when you're talking about America. And I think also it improves the quality of our immigrants because to get here was not always easy. So if you got to America, it wasn't just, for most people, not just walking across a border because that's where you were. You made a concerted effort. You believed in American ideals to some extent. And uh, it was an ordeal to come here by boat in earlier times. Now let's look at, so the one dilemma in this, this overarching analysis, I dilemma, but one thing that's, that's unusual is China. So here you have a country that isn't free, that isn't democratic, that is, and we know, increasingly now becoming autocratic, at least in the last 24, 36 months. And yet in the period, let's say 1990 to, let's say 2020, that 30-year period, China does, frankly, what Japan does between 1947 and 1977 or 87. It grows like hell. And it's innovative. And it's, how do we square that with our idea that capitalism, uh, innovation comes from creativity, which comes from freedom, which comes from striving, this ability to have a go? Well, the wealthiest Chinese outposts are the capitalist ones. That would be Singapore, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, especially before it was taken over. If you look at communist China, it still has a great commercial spirit. But those are the poorest Chinese people in the world. Compare them to the Chinese, say, in Canada, or for that matter, Ireland. It's not even close. China right now is about at the level of Mexico. It's much better than where they were with like $200 a head per capita income. But compared to much of the rest of the world, including other Chinese peoples, it's not a big success. And would you say that, that in fact, what is actually holding it back, if we can talk about holding back in terms of China, given what it's done in the last 30 years, is this lack of, you know, the oddballs, the unusual creatures, the disruptors, the diverse folk, the people who actually say, no, you know what, I'm going to back myself and I'm going to have a go in the market. 
would you say that if, if China were to actually become more open politically, it would actually become economically much more impressive? I hope they will, and I believe that would be the case. I don't know if they will. They have a great deal of censorship, uh, close to the outside world for several years, uh, strong pressures for conformity. And you look at, say, social sciences or economics, our field, there's just very little of interest coming out of China. And, That's true, uh, actually, yeah. Yeah, I, I think they will liberalize at some point. I think they'll have to, just like they had to get rid of zero COVID. But it's uncertain, right? Yeah. And explain to me then, we start with growth. You know, the country like the United Kingdom, and I saw you, Rose, you were, I think you were in the UK a couple of weeks ago, and you were writing, look, you know, Southeast England, London, around London, that, that sort of London, Oxford, Cambridge, that part of England is, you'd say, one of the most dynamic places in the world. But what happens when a country goes backwards? And I, the reason I pick England is because it has gone backward, has dropped this button, and it does have extraordinary social, regional, political divisions, which are, which are real and seem to be exacerbated by lots of things. Why does a country stop growing? It will depend on the country. So as I understand Great Britain, there's a stagnation in living standards and a very strong regional imbalance. So South, m much of South England is doing wonderfully, and much of the rest of the country is not doing well at all. My hypothesis, and I stress the word hypothesis, is this, that it was once an empire, and London was the capital of an enormous empire, and so London sort of grew too big. It was properly large for an empire of that size. But now that the empire is gone, you have this one kind of like, it's like having elephantitis or something, <laughs> this one city that's in a way out of control. It's great for London, Cambridge, and Oxford, which are the innovative places, but it's drained talent from the rest of the nation. You have an imbalance. You know, do the Tories rule? Do the Scots have a say? What about Northern Ireland? You know, maybe the politics isn't fundamentally workable with London and South England being so powerful economically and politically and culturally. So I think they're stuck. I don't know how they get out of it. I think South England will continue to do very well. I'm, I'm very optimistic about part of the country. But the country as a whole, they, they've dug themselves into a ditch. And maybe it's partly a kind of revenge for the earlier empire. So the Irish can chuckle at this. The Irish, as you know, they're now doing better than Great Britain. And uh, they're, they're in the European Union, Ireland. I think Brexit has been proven to be a mistake. It's lowered their living standards. Uh, I don't know that the EU would take them back if they wanted back in. But people increasingly are regretting Brexit. It's created problems with Northern Ireland that you're very familiar with. They just made a bunch of mistakes on top of everything else. Well, see, this this is my point, which is this is like like how good countries go bad is by making the wrong decisions over and over again. Yes. And, and then this is where I want to come to the role of policy and economics and our business in all this. So if we take the growth comes from, as you said, the tinkers, the messes around with, the improvisers, and they're coming up with better things. And you said about tires or it could be engines. When I was a kid, and John, who was my next door neighbor across the way, we remember that our road used to regularly push the McWilliams car, right? <laughs> yes, we did. In icy mornings, right? My dad had a Killman Hunter, right? Made in Coventry or something, Birmingham, right? And my memory of the late 70s in Ireland is all the kids in our road pushing other fellas dad's and mum's cars which they because they all broke down in the morning that just doesn't happen anymore yeah. 
right? There was the, it's lucky we were at the top of the hill. Yeah, actually. we were at the top of the hill. We push it down, right? But what can policy do to create the right incentives? You talk about the start to liberate those who will say, you know what, cars don't have to break down in the in in the freezing cold. We can do something better than that. Again, it will depend on the country. But if you're talking about Britain, I think one of their problems, it's not policy, but it's their social norms. So there's a nobility, there's a class system, your accent still matters. I don't blame any particular policy on that. If you think of Republic of Ireland, it's far more socially egalitarian. Yeah. So is. the way you get status at the margin, say in Dublin, is actually to earn a lot of money, which is a good incentive. You can't so much look to history the old Anglo-Irish elite is, you know, mostly a thing of the past. And uh, there are too many ways to get status in Great Britain that do not involve being a productive innovator. Now, when it comes to policy, I think ideally they would like to rejoin the European Union, but I don't know that that's an option right now. I think also the cost of housing and rentals, especially in southern England, it's far too high. This problem they share with Ireland. Yeah, we've got this problem as well. Yeah, they haven't built enough real estate for people to live in, and they need to do that. But there are very strong entrenched interest groups, most of all in the Conservative Party, who don't want their green belt taken away or, you know, too many things changed or, you know, not that they don't have as many hedgehogs as they used to have around. Yep. And so they're stuck on that one, too. So it's going to be tough for them. Now, when you look at uh, the rest of Europe and let's say uh, regions of the United States, I'm always intrigued with with the restlessness, and I think that's a phrase you use a lot of the United States, this this kind of still this bizarre pioneering spirit where you'll meet Americans who, you know, will have moved. Irish were a bit like this as well, but Americans will have moved five or six times in their adult life, five or six states, five or six almost different jobs, careers. Again, is that part of the process, the sort of the urgency of the United States that gives us this or gives the Americans this technological or innovative edge? Yes, and it relates to our status markers. No one thinks you're bad or weird because you moved around a lot. It could even be a mark of high status. You don't have some like landed country estate that you're tied to, unlike, say, many parts of Britain. Yep. And you you are not just politically free, but in some kind of metaphysical sense. I feel as an American, you're freer to do things, to reinvent yourself, to reimagine who it is you really are. And that has its excesses as well. But if you look, say it, hippie culture in San Francisco and how it turns into tech culture and a lot of commercial innovation, that's a remarkable story. And a lot of it comes because America is pretty weird. Explain more. You can't just drop that. Tell me about the weirdness and, 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 where, and, where, and, and where it feeds into economics and innovation. You know, our saying is California is where the future happens first. And that's yeah. true in good and bad ways. But the state has been a remarkable engine for change. Earlier, it was Hollywood, which is still there. Television, of course, but then Silicon Valley, tech, social media, those innovations, they're global to an extent, but the center of them very clearly is the Bay Area in Northern California. And it's a part of the country just full of brilliant weirdos who typically are not coming from extraordinarily distinguished backgrounds. Like it might be, well, the father or mother were upper middle class but they're not relying on family wealth to do this. And as you know, two Irishmen, you know, Patrick and John Collison, that's where they move to start Stripe. And it works yep. very well there. So uh, I view the Bay Area, which to me culturally feels very foreign, I have to add. 
but it's one of America's greatest creations. And it's a weird place. And it has huge problems. I'm sure you see it on your evening news with homeless and people stealing things. Uh, you smell marijuana too often in the streets, even if you think marijuana is fine. Like you shouldn't smell it all the time walking around the center of town, right? Well, that's funny you say that. I was in New York. I was saying to to, to John, I was in New York, I don't know, November. And uh, it seemed to me the entire Manhattan had to be, everyone had to be stoned. The smell of spliff in Manhattan was just extraordinary. For somebody who's triggered when they smell spliff to think it's illegal, right? You think, you think spliff cops, right? This is in my head, right? Mm. But it was like, and, I, and so what you're saying is, is San Francisco. What I want to get to is to, is to this strange... And Berkeley is worse yet. If you okay. want to smell that stuff, my goodness, Berkeley makes New York seem like uh, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's tell me, but the, the connection between, uh, I like the, the kind of the slightly off-center, slightly weird population and economic innovation and creativity. Because I, uh, we, you and I were just talking about this article I'd written a while ago about the, the connection between Joyce the artist and Joyce the entrepreneur. This idea that the type of people who set up companies are kind of, there's a defiance in backing oneself. And you see that in creative people, you see it in writers, you see it in movie directors, you see it in artists, you see it in musicians, a type of defiance that I have something to say. And, and explain the connection between that and this sort of, as you'd say, the weirdo population of the Bay Area. Well, there's a kind of overconfidence behind entrepreneurship, whether it's artistic or economic. And maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and you end up validating what appeared to be an overconfidence. But America as a nation is based on its own overconfidence. Oh, we'll take this land and, you know, we're going to take it all over and we're going to make it work and we're going to create this democratic system of government out of nothing and it will be better than anything else. If you go back and look at that historically, that's crazy, right? Uh, there were huge victims along the way, but there's some level at which it absolutely completely worked. And uh, people feel that in their bones and they carry it into their personal lives. And this broader notion of having like a calling, which originally was a religious idea, but it now has been secularized, I find that is much stronger in America say, than either, you know, England or anywhere on the European continent. It's not even close. And like, was, I feel my calling is yeah. to do all this with economics, teach people more economics. I'm very dedicated to that. It's not like a question at the margin, am I getting paid for this or not? You just do it. And that's a very American approach. That That's fascinating. I've, never, I've actually never thought about it that way, that, that in the United States there are, people are more committed to, as you say, a calling, which used to be, spiritual stroke religious stroke transcendental and now it's secular that's what you're saying and that's a feature of american life yes and here's the difference i notice with ireland that you have this long tradition of the church of ireland which is an offshoot of the anglican church so on one hand your protestantism is bent in this other very official direction rather than individual calling and on the other hand the majority of your people are catholics who because of how they're treated are rebelling against Protestant ideas altogether. So the broader sort of Puritan uh, Protestant notion of calling, which gets transmitted to America, it does not in an equally strong manner get transmitted to Ireland. And I think that's one factor culturally holding back entrepreneurship in Ireland, which to be clear has gone great, but I think it could be much better yet. 
Yeah, we're always on dodgy ground though when we're going down the Weberian Protestant work ethic because there, you know, if you look at if you look at Catholic areas, it's interesting of, of Europe, so northern Italy, southern Germany, large parts of France, the industrial France. What you see is this, this, this these these kind of sectarian differences have now kind of I think have really dissipated in the secular society. I hope so except for certain parts of Northern Ireland where it's absolutely still the case. But I like this idea that it is an individual calling that drives certain people to take risks. And that is a positive feedback loop. And that comes back to society in economic growth or in new products or, or whatever. What you're seeing is that it's, it's an individual idea that drives yes, the economy. It's not about formal religion. Like in America, I sometimes say, we have Protestant Jews we have Protestant Catholics, and that sounds a little absurd, but I think that's how it is. So it's it's in the air, it's in the water. And I think if all of Europe had stayed Catholic, uh, it wouldn't have grown the way it did. It doesn't mean that like people now who are Protestant have some big advantage. You don't see that. As you know, Southern Germany, which is more Catholic, is now richer than Northern Germany, which is more Protestant. The Nordic countries, which tend to be Protestant, uh, they're doing fine, but they're not, say, doing better than Switzerland, which is very mixed in terms of yeah. Protestant Catholic. And Britain, Britain is the. I mean, the amazing thing is Northern Ireland is the poorest part of Ireland by a country mile, with the yes. highest proportion of you know ethnic Protestants. And Britain was ethnically a Protestant country and was be very much the exporter of this idea as we started with, and that has slipped backwards. So I, I agree with you there. But there's still something about Protestant ideas that I think gets picked up in, in many non-Protestant countries. So the United States, you know, we now have Protestant Hindus, you could say. They're doing great. <laughs> Highest per capita income of any group. Now, this is where I, I want to I I end with you, is on the issue of immigration. I read something recently that in the Forbes uh, 500 companies, 40% of Forbes 500 companies in the United States were founded by first or second generation migrants, immigrants. And then you were talking about Hindu Protestants and et cetera. What is it about migration that adds significantly to economic growth and to welfare in countries? Well, if you are a large market like the United States with a relative degree of freedom, you will attract the commercially ambitious. So I don't think small poor countries get an equal quality of migrant, but the United States does. Canada and Australia a bit less so, but they do very well. Ireland is starting to do very well, and I think that will be a very important trend for the Irish future, like the Ukrainians who are coming to Ireland. Many yeah. will go back, but I would predict some will stay. And the ones who stay will want to do something commercially in Ireland. So for my own country, you know, I have said this many times, I would prefer that we triple the rate at which we allow migrants to enter this country, roughly triple it, which would be a big increase. But I think we could manage that. And on net, uh, they're a huge gain to America. And, you know, India and China have more people than we do. We have more liberty and more wealth. But we don't want to just be dwarfed by size. We need to, you know, pull our weight a bit more and, you know, go back to what our national destiny really has been, which is a nation of immigrants. And just finally on, on American politics, right, uh, you know, we look at from the outside. Uh, look, we're, you're, you've heard this from many foreigners, you've heard it from your own, but people not really understanding America anymore, you know. The America that I went to visit and went to work in the late 80s, totally different creature to the American now, clearly. Uh, to what extent do you then come back to, is 
politics, the presidency, the tone of the country important for what we're talking about, which is the diversity, the vibrancy, and the energy of the place? Well, on one hand, it's obviously important, but I would say relative to what I hear other people say, I don't think it's as important as what one hears. So what I typically hear from people is, like Donald Trump, something, 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 and now everything's changed. And I don't agree with that. I think Trump was a bad president. I never supported him. Very glad when he lost to Biden. But at the end of the day, I interview talented young people all the time from all over the world. And the place they want to come is the United States. And they're not that concerned with Donald Trump. They're not asking me, oh, is he going to run again? Is he going to win again? They still see this as the land of opportunity. And in that sense, I don't think it's changed so much. But culturally, it has changed. It has many, many, many more immigrants. Uh, All sorts of issues such as, say, gay rights are very different than the 1980s. Which are nice cities has changed a great deal. Um, But to me, it still feels like the same America at its heart. And just before we go, you always write about culture, art, literature. To what extent, when I was younger, America was so dominant in the fields of soft power, you know, Hollywood, rock and roll, literature. Is America still the soft power king? I might reword it a bit differently. We've had two recent major trends that have boosted American soft power. One is English is truly entrenched as a global language in a way it had not been. And the other is the internet, which is by and large an American creation with an awful lot of American content. And Americans are somehow really good at the internet. Uh, I think at the same time, just other nations have done much more with their writers, musicians, all over Ireland, you know, in particular, but you can go almost anywhere. Uh, Bollywood has grown, South Korean cinema. So we're doing better and everyone else is doing better too. I think our soft power is remarkably strong still because of the internet and English, and it's much less about Hollywood. Uh, But the rest of the world is more influential as well. Tyler, we will leave it there. Tyler Khan again, lovely to chat to you. Uh, The open invitation, as you know, is for Kilkenny, first weekend in November, if you fancy it. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again. I will see you there at some point. Take care. Ooh, Mac, we need to discuss a few uh, issues there, all right? Well, absolutely. This will be the Linfield Rangers axis. (laughs) Whether prods are better with money than our crowd. Well, let's have a talk about that after this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Mac, I have to say, I'm trying to digest that last point about Protestantism. Ism. And its impact on economics. I've always knew there was kind of a, a Protestant way with money. But I always thought that was a Scottish kind of thing or a Norwegian well, kind of thing. Scottish thing. It's coming from me because like my granny's you yeah. know, Scottish prod and, 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 and my grandparents are mixed marriage. So, you know, yeah. we, we know, you know, mixed marriage is such a ridiculous thing to say, isn't it? A mixed marriage. But I suppose that back in the, back in, I suppose in the 1910s, that was unusual. Yeah. Um, but, but it's interesting, though, when he's talking about the kind of Protestant Jews and the Protestant Hindus. Hindus yeah. And, and it's about a way of thinking yeah. and an approach. Okay. Explain so, that to so, me a bit so more. What's your take on that? Comes, it, it all starts with a guy called Max Weber. Max Weber was a German sociologist. Mm. Uh, very, very brilliant. And he wrote a book which became incredibly popular in the 19th century called The Protestant Work Ethic. And what he did, and this is a really interesting, granular approach to sociology, is that he went into German cities. It was basically a German theory. So let's go back. Germany is totally convulsed by the Thirty Years' War, mm. which was a sectarian war like no other between Catholics and Protestants in Germany. And to give you a sense of what was happening, it was a bit like Syria. Okay, yeah. Right? Like, so, for example, cities like Weimar lost the majority of their population. Mm. So it was an unbelievably vicious sectarian civil war within Germany, of which the wounds were not healed up until the 20th century. So you'll even okay. find for, you know, in Germany, the divisions between Catholics and Protestants are still very much there. Yeah. So there's Catholic areas and Protestant areas. But... Weber was trying to prove that Protestants were better with money, right? But he wasn't, didn't set out to prove this. He just set out to do a survey of economics, of business owners, of wealth, of class in Germany. Mm. And what he did was he went through in German cities an amazingly detailed survey of the professions the workplaces, the jobs, the occupations of various people. And then he identified whether Protestants or Catholics. Right. And what he found was that Protestants in Germany tended to be richer, tended to have more savings, mm. tended to have more wealth, mm. tended to be much more part of the merchant class than Catholics. And he deduced from this that there was a Protestant work ethic that basically prods got up earlier in the morning and went out to work, nice. like my granny, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm my in-laws up north as well. Yeah, yeah. So The early bird catches the worm all and all that kind of carry on, right? And a little bit more, a little bit frugal with their brass and all yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the Fenians go off down the boozer and spend it up. So the problem with Weber is that what he noticed was there seemed to be a difference in Germany. But there's always a huge risk from going from some sort of quasi-anecdotal but reasonably well-based observation to a general theory. Yes. A general theory is where you get all sorts of nastiness. Now, imagine that Weber is writing at a time of Darwinism as well. Yeah. So Darwinism comes in with a basic notion that there are superior versions of each race. Yeah. And those superior versions, although Darwin didn't really say this, it's actually a... It's 
it's diminishing of Darwin to say that he thought it was survival of the fittest. He thought it was survival of the most adaptable, where mm. the actual weak or the apparently weak could actually find their niche and do okay. But be that as it may, the world in the late 19th century was infused with notions of racial superiority, which of course gave pleasure for colonialists because they could say, well, we're actually European whites. Mm. We're actually brainier than African blacks. And we've done all this, right? So the great European imperial project was supported to a degree by Darwinism. Yeah. And of course, out of Darwinism comes eugenics. <sighs> out of eugenics comes fascism. Out of fascism comes racial hatred, anti-Semitism, all that sort of stuff. Mm. So there's a direct line from Weber and Darwin to what I believe actually ended up happening in the Second World War. Right. An intellectual, and Nietzsche as well. This So, to so, come so back, did, did Weber, like, did he introduce the idea of, when he was looking at different career options? And, 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 yeah, and, and wealth and, he, and all, all that. Yeah, and did, did he introduce the idea of, of the Jews well, were the kind of no, financial? No, no, but once, once, come well, no, but once you start, once you start going down, once you fuse Weberian observations about the quality of different ethnic yeah. society. Then you start right? applying it all over yeah, the place. And then you have a bit of Darwinism yeah. and then you have a bit of eugenics yeah. and you have a bit of Nietzsche and, you know, and suddenly you're into all sorts of weird stuff. Of course, Hitler, of course, imbibed all this. Yes, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Drowned himself in this nonsense, right? But to come back to the point, Weberian observations about Germany, taken together with the fact that Britain was the preeminent power and was the preeminent Protestant power. I mean, Britain set itself up as a Protestant power. Yeah suggested there was a link between what they call the individual calling of Protestants, right? So Catholicism is a collective religion. We're mm. all in the big church together and the priest has a direct line to God and basically we channel it all through the priest. Yeah, yeah. And whatever the, he says goes. Yeah, well, the Protestants are an entirely different thing. It's a direct relationship with God. So you read the Bible, you have different offshoots. You know, Protestantism is varied. So you have on the one hand, you have Mennonites and you have all sorts of other sects, you know, yeah. like Shan's crowd are from Portland own, right? Mm. Right? On the border, can't you There's mm. five Presbyterian churches, right? <laughs> there's the first, second, third, fourth, fifth. So they're always splitting up with each other because I don't, the Bible says something else, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, so, so there is a sort of an individualism in Protestant identity. And what Tyler Cowan was saying is that that might explain why for a certain period, Protestant countries seem to get richer quickly. So the mm. best one in Holland, Britain, Northern Germany, all that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah. It also goes back to the Reformation. The Reformation is fascinating because if you go back to the home of the Reformation, mm. Luther. It's, it's Luther, right? Mm. And Luther's from Saxony, so a pretty kind of average part of Germany, right? Yeah. But if you actually look at the combination of the printing press, which was basically the internet of the time. Yeah. And Lutheranism, what you see is something very interesting, is that the cities that adopted the printing press, that had their own printing press, were much more likely to convert to Protestantism. And this is an interesting idea. Right, okay. And the reason is the main pamphlets that the printing press started to produce were religious pamphlets, mm. right? And Luther was like a blogger extraordinaire. Yeah, like Luther yeah. was a, Luther's production. If Luther was hanging around now, he'd be a podcaster. <laughs> yeah. He would, right? So you see this connection between Protestantism, literacy, and the printing press. Yes. And the arrival of a merchant class, a guild class in Germany. So certainly for a period of time, there was this relationship. 
now, of course, when you look at the world, that relationship is broken down. Mm. So the most Protestant parts of Britain, this is very interesting, where the low churches were, were most strong in the 19th century. They were the areas that most voted for Brexit, which is quite interesting. Ah, right. Okay, right? yeah. So there's a sort of a cussed anti-establishment. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you look at the areas where what they used to, they call them corrugated Protestant churches. So the little churches with corrugated roofs, so they weren't rich, okay? Mm. Very low church, no iconography, all that sort of stuff, right? They actually voted in huge numbers for Brexit, which suggests that there is a relationship between a deep anti-establishment feeling, because Brexit was an anti-establishment vote, yes. right? Yes, yeah, yeah. And these people. However... In the past, that used to be expressed with financial independence, but they've also become a welfare class in England. They've become a dependent class mm. in England. So it's very strange. So, of course, the great thing is Northern Ireland. I mean, yeah. Northern Ireland, you know, is the poorest part of this island by a significant place. Yeah, yeah, it it's is. also one with the highest percentage of Protestants. Mm. So that thing is all broke down, as I said to Tyler, Southern Germany, you know, Baden-Wittenberg, mm. Bavaria, far richer. And, of course, Western Germany, you know, Rhineland-Pfalz, all this is around Cologne, much richer. Mm. than other parts of Germany. You also notice something fascinating. And they are? They're Catholics. They're Catholics, So the yeah. Catholics are in Bavaria, in Baden-Württemberg, yep, yep, Rhineland, yep. Pfalz, yep. and then all of Prussia is Protestant, right? Mm. But if you look now at Germany, because Germany is very interesting because Germany, you still choose to pay taxes to the Catholic Church. So Germany finances the Catholic Church. The actual liquidity of the Catholic Church comes from Germans. Germans pay a proportion really? of their tax to the church. They still right. do. In indulgences. It's like in indulgences, yeah. yeah. Ulrich Zwingli was your man, right? But if you look at that, an actual fact, the liquidity of... So if you think the Catholic Church is incredibly rich because it's got loads of assets. Yeah. But it hasn't very much cash. Cash comes from Germany. German Catholics pay for the Catholic Church because they pay in their taxes. Jesus, the, the Germans pay for everything. Yeah, no, they do, they do. And if you look at Germany, there's amazing maps yeah. of Germany. If you look at the split between religious belief in Germany... Mm. And what you see is that around what was known as West Germany, people are quite religious. Well, they, they're not quite religious. They will say, I'm a Protestant, I'm a Catholic, mm. or whatever, right? East Germany, it's all atheists. Yeah, and yeah, they yeah. say they're all atheists, right? But if you actually look at who voted, this is the interesting thing. For Hitler, for example, yeah. they're much more likely to be Protestants in the end, even though Hitler was a Catholic. So there's a real weird stuff going on. There's lots of strange stuff. So the greatest anti-Nazi votes came from Catholic areas of Germany. Mm. And that's because there was a Catholic party. There right. was a Catholic, Christian Catholic party. Yeah. And that's the seeds of the Christian Democrats now in Germany. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. A lot of stuff going on. But what Tyler is saying is true, that this idea of a calling, right, that used to be a religious idea, an American Protestantism, is very much part of the American pioneer spirit. But as he said, it could be Jewish Protestants or yeah, Hindu yeah, Protestants. Yeah, yeah. It's that sense that you are on a mission of self-improvement, which I think I think it's interesting. And I've always said that, unfortunately, about economics, it's a very Protestant science. Yeah. Right? If you look at the, you know, it's, it was started by Adam Smith, who was... This single, he lived with his mammy. Think about this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? <laughs> Imagine somebody who lived their mammy all their life. He was an incel. He was an incel talking about society. Yeah. When he wasn't even part of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? But that's for another day, John. 
we'll discuss religion, economics, sectarianism, and all the good things. We'll talk to you next week.